Pastor Xavier Reese and the character of God. What's the repeated phrase throughout Isaiah? The Holy One of Israel. Don't forget that. He's in great contrast to the great sinfulness of his people. Holiness. The Holy One of Israel. Or do you open the book with Isaiah 1.18? Come, let's reason together. Though your sins be red as crimson, I'll make them white as snow. The constant warning, but the constant wooing. Be saved. Turn to me. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. How does a teacher deal with an unruly student? How does a loving parent deal with a disobedient child? How does a loving God deal with sin? Today, as Pastor Xavier takes us back to his study of the book of Isaiah, he reminds us of the consequences of sin and holiness of God. Let's join him for today's lesson, The Conquering King. The usual picture that people have of God is one of a loving and merciful God who would not send people to hell or hold them accountable for their sins. Their simple explanation is that they cannot believe in a God other than that. So they have created a God in their minds just like them. So they are able to walk with their God. Remember doing that? He said, well, you know, I mean, I, I don't do, I mean, God knows my heart. And, and if we only knew how much he knew our heart, we wouldn't say that. <laughs> the truth of the matter is that God is different from us and separate from us. For he's not sinful. We are. And he has given to mankind many evidences of his anger and judgment against sin. The flood of Noah is one that we cannot escape. The entire world population was destroyed except for eight people, and that population was probably equivalent to the present population. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, only three people escaped. Lot, his two daughters, and they were very, very carnal. Both of these past judgments are used over and over again in the New Testament to warn us over and over again And for man to say that it's wrong for God to have destroyed the whole world or to be so critical is a bit hypocritical in view of man's history. According to the Canadian Army Journal, a former president of the uh, Norwegian Academy of Science came up with some fantastic figures and findings. Since 30 600 B.C., the world has known only 292 years of peace, 292 years of peace since 3,600 B.C. During this period, there have been 14,539 wars, 31 wars, large and small, in which 3 trillion, 640 billion people have been killed. 3 trillion, 640 billion people have been killed. The value of the destruction would pay for a golden belt around the world, 156 kilometers, 97.2 miles in width, and 10 meters, about 33 feet thick. 
Since 650 BC, there have been 1,656 armed races, only 16 of which have not ended in a war. The remainder have ended in the economic collapse of the country's concern. Now, man's pretty hypocritical to try to say that God's judgments have been unjust and that they can't believe on a God. It's a double standard. The unbelief of any person does not nullify the fact that God has judged and will judge again. And Isaiah gives us a picture of the Lord's coming as a conquering warrior in this passage of Isaiah 63, 1 through 3. We want to focus on that this morning. Let me read the passage for you. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This one is glorious in his apparel, traveling with the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the people, no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeem has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation to me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger and made them drink in my fury and brought down their strength to the earth. Isaiah the prophet gives to us here a picture of the Lord's coming as a conquering warrior marked by these three important details. First, in verse 1, the identity of the warrior Secondly, in verse 2 and 3, the indisputable victory of the warrior. And then verse 4 through 6, the inescapable day of the warrior. And it follows right in progression. Let's begin with the identity of the warrior here in verse 1. Notice, the verse is packed. First, the place of his coming. The inquiry is to a person. Who is this one who comes from Edom? You might think of a sentinel on a, on a wall looking out, as we will see. And he has his eyes out there, and he sees something moving. He doesn't know. And then it gets closer and closer. And he begins to ask these questions. Now, you know that Edom was the dwelling of the descendants of Esau, 20 miles southeast of the Dead Sea, on the east side of the Jordan. And so from the city, now remember back in chapter 62 there, verse 6, God said that he had already put watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem. Now, the prophets were watchmen. But it's very possible that these also speak of angelic hosts that sit on the walls of Jerusalem. And how many wars have they seen throughout the ages over that land? Even today, you know all the heat that's going on over there right now. It's hot. And here he is, and, and it's coming from Edom. Now, Edom, as you know, means red. And we get this back in Genesis 25, 30, where Esau is introduced to us, and he becomes the enemy of God. 
Or here again, we get the description of this location, but also of the idea of the color red. Uh, he says, with dyed garments from Bozra, which suggests a gathering of grapes. It was the capital of Eden. The perpetual enemies of God. It's all over the scriptures. In Lamentations, Jeremiah gives us chapter 4, verse 21 and 22 of how Edom betrayed Judah in the fall. Ezekiel 25, 12 and 14. Remember Jacob, heel catcher, but his name was chained to governed by God, Israel. Esau, type of the flesh, he hated the things of God. Here he is again. This is the enemy. Now, God does not settle all of his accounts in one day, but he settles all of his accounts in the day of his coming. In fact, he has already told us through Isaiah in chapter 34, 5 through 6, about Edom as he gives us a specific thing there. 34, 5 through 6. He says, For my sword shall be bathed in, in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down to Edom. In the peoples of my course for judgment, the sword of the Lord filled with blood and it made overflowing with fatness and the blood of lambs and goats with the fat of the kidneys and rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah and a great slaughter in the land of Eden. Notice secondly, the presence of his person. The prophet describes him by his dress. This one who is glorious in his apparel. His dress is depicted as a conquering warrior. The awesomeness of such a warrior coming upon the scene. And by the way, as we're going to see, he's not coming to fight in this point. He's through with the fight. It's done. That's why he looks the way he looks. The prophet describes him by the impressiveness of his person, traveling in greatness, in the greatness of his strength. His walk is erect to sustain the weight of his armor, giving an impressive gait with his head drawn back and his chest drawn forward. He's a conquering warrior. His enemies were no match for him. He conquered over them. Remember that the key phrase, one of the key phrases of Isaiah is what? The Lord of hosts. We've seen this over and over and over again. Numerous times. What does it mean? The captain of the armies of heaven. This is the warrior. Notice thirdly, the preeminence of his person. The response of the warrior is, I who speak in righteousness. He, the Messiah, this victorious warrior, identifies himself. I am he. No one identifies him. He identifies himself. There is only one who is righteous. There is only one who speaks in righteousness. You and I have capacity to speak righteous words if we walk in the Spirit, if we go according to the Word of God, but we also have the capacity for failure because we're still sinful. This one cannot lie. This one can make no mistake. This one speaks absolute truth. Notice the response of the warrior is also one mighty to save. The purpose of his coming out of Edom and Bozrah is to bring salvation to who? To Israel. Isaiah has told us over and over again. He's speaking to Israel. The ability to do so is inherent in his person. He's the servant of the Lord. We've seen this. In fact, in chapter 59, verse 16, he says, 
He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation to him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with the zeal as a cloak. He is the one who's coming to bring salvation. He is the mighty warrior. He has fought. He has won the whole victory and salvation already. It's something past. Notice the basis on which he is able to save Israel is the blood that he shed on the cross in his first coming. Not the blood that's upon him in his vengeance. The forgiveness of sins, the salvation of man is based on his first coming. The second coming is for vengeance, as we'll see. There is no salvation here because of that blood. This blood is evidence of those who stood against him. The title of the Savior of mankind was nailed over his head on the cross. Jesus, King of the Jews. Do you remember as Joshua was entering the land in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 through 15? He looked out as he looked at Jericho and they were going to overtake it. God had given the plan. And he saw a man drawn with a sword. And he said, are you for us or for our enemy? And he says, no. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. As the commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. And then he told him to take his shoes off his feet for the place he stood was holy ground. Who was this? Jesus Christ. The incarnation, pre-incarnation in the Old Testament. A mighty warrior. He, he didn't say, I'm for you, Joshua. He says, I'm for whoever is with God. See, we always say, well, Lord, you're on my side. I'm, I'm with whoever's with God. You see, he doesn't take sides. He just sees who's going to take his side. That's what he's looking for. So often we want to say, well, you know, are you for me, Lord? Well, God would say, do you believe my word? Are you living my word? Are you one with me? Then I'm for you. The fact that the Bible teaches that Jesus will come back to the earth is an unbelievable thing to so many people in the world. Yet they believe positively, without any difficulty, that aliens have come to this planet. <laughs> now, they cannot believe that God can come down, but they can believe that aliens have come down and visited us. Amazing to me. And we spend trillions of dollars trying to communicate with someone who doesn't exist. Amazing. One-fifth of Scripture deals with prophecy. And one-third of that one-fifth deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, do you think that he's not coming the second time based that he did come the first time? The world as we know it does not honor the authority of the Bible as the word of God. But the more disturbing thing is the growing number of people within the church who live their lives out in a very subjective type of reasoning rather than believing the truth of the scriptures. The message to the seven churches of Revelation, you have to keep in mind, is very progressive, but the progression is downward. In the church of Laodicea, he says you're blind naked because you're lukewarm. 
You think you're rich, but you're blind. You're destitute. You don't know it. And I, I am disturbed as a teacher and as a pastor the more I hear people talk within the church because they rationalize away the scriptures. They explain them away. And it's not that there's not truth going out, per se. For Remember, Isaiah told us that he's going to bring a famine of the word, not of bread, but of the word. And people go to church, but you know what? They're not letting truth change them. They're not allowing the scriptures to be the authority. But people are rationalizing. So I was driving yesterday, and then turn on the radio, this Christian program going on, and, and they're talking about marriage and divorce and everything, and, and people are calling in, giving their own opinion, their own subjective thing. Even the narrator there is saying, well, yeah, you know, it's true. You know, we have to be responsible to God. The pastor shouldn't lay a big trip on us, and we're, you know, we're going to have to give an account to God, and so we have to do what, well, where, where's the authority of Scripture? And it's like we are the authority. No, 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 the Scripture is the authority. Be careful. Always learning, never being able to come to the knowledge of the truth, 2 Timothy 3, 7 says. Got all kinds of Bible study notes. Never miss a Sunday. But what has it done to you? Has it changed you? If it hasn't, I'd be more scared than boasting. It better be changing you. It better be changing me. In the day of his coming... He will speak his righteous words and every mouth will be stopped and all the world will be guilty before God, Paul says in Romans 3.19. No race is better than any other race. No person is more righteous than God. All will be silent. Everybody so has such a big mouth down here right now, don't they? Literally. And that day, boy, it will be silence. Have you ever been somewhere where there's absolute silence? It's kind of eerie, isn't it? I mean, absolute silence. We are so used to noise and pollution that we go crazy. We can't stand it. Put on the radio. But you get quiet. Like you go into one of those caves that is just utterly dark and just whole quiet. And it's weird. It's almost like, like you can feel it. And that day, nobody's going to see a peep, man. Right now, everybody shoots their mouth off. Everybody will be silent. This is the identity of the warrior. Notice secondly, in verse 2 and 3. The indisputable victory of the warrior. The indisputable victory of the warrior. First in verse 2, the evidence of the victory was an open display. The inquiry as to the condition of his clothes. Why is your apparel red and your garment like one who treads in the winepress? You're familiar with the practice of trampling the graves to extract the Jews barefooted, and it resulted with the clothes being stained. You ladies go somewhere, you're going to drink a little bit of grape juice, but in those days, they wine, it, it spill out. You know that it stains. And this is the picture here. This is the first image that comes to the one looking. He's seen him come from Basra. He's coming from there, and he's looking. He's getting closer, and it's becoming more clear. Now, the two words give the understanding of the thoroughness and the vastness of the slaughter. His apparel was stained. His garment was stained. It was no little battle. But he's victorious. Notice secondly in verse 3 still. The declaration of the victory was announced. He alone accomplished the task. I have trodden the winepress alone. 
and from the peoples no one was with me. The servant of the Lord is the sole participant. The, he states it twice, I alone and no one with me. No one will help God. God doesn't need any help. And sometimes some preachers and some Christians think that, boy, they're God's gift to God. If it wasn't for them, all would be lost. He alone can judge unto perfection, as John 5, 27 and 30 says. All judgment has been given to the Son. Now the reason for his trotting the winepress is twofold. Notice, he did it in his anger, and he did it in his fury. The response is the vengeance against the ungodly. Now you and I, when we have anger and we have fury, we have the capacity to be unjust. And so I'm a little irritated, uptight, and my kid does something because I'm mad at somebody or whatever, and all of a sudden I jump all over him. Or I'm upset over some things, and, and you walk in, and you, you say something that bugs me, and I bite your head off. My fury, my anger is, is selfish. It's unjust. But when God deals with his fury and his anger, it is absolutely righteous. No mistake. But then we say, oh, that's not right. How can God? I was talking to this young lady one day, and she was telling me how she loved the Lord, and the Lord had just touched her and changed her life, all that. And I'm going, oh, great, praise God. And all of a sudden, I said, but... Why, you know, all these children and I've been working with, you know, and I just, my heart goes out. Why does God, why, then on and on and on. And I just go, I said, shame on you. Do you hear yourself? You're telling me that you're more compassionate and more loving than God. Because if they were God, they wouldn't allow the stuff that goes on. Amazing. Notice thirdly in verse 3 still at the end. The explanation for his victorious appearance was described. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Notice that it is in the past tense as an accomplished fact, even though it is still future, the prophetic perfect. We've seen this through Isaiah often. 46.10, he tells that he knows the end from the beginning. So this, though it hasn't happened, this is 700 before Christ even comes, it's done. It's a done deal. We saw that in Isaiah 53. The lamb has been slain. A done deal. Your sins have been forgiven. You haven't even been born. Amazing. The one that nothing escapes him is the one that sees all. All things. All things open and naked. Hebrews 4.12. With whom we have to do with. And yet man often tries to deal in such a way that, you know, he can hide from God. The scriptures tell us many times in Proverbs and we read in Isaiah, people run in the darkness, they look around and they try to be sneaky and this and that. And, you know, how can you be sneaky when guy's looking down and sees everything? The anger and fury of God is to be understood in the context of his person. Who is he? What's the repeated phrase throughout Isaiah? The Holy One of Israel. Don't forget that. Everything must be put back in its context. This phrase is repeated throughout the book 26 times. He's in great contrast to the great sinfulness of his people. Holiness, the Holy One of Israel. The phrase is sharp contrast to the nation. 
who was separated by God because of their sin, as Isaiah 59.1 has told us. His ears not deaf or his hands short that he cannot save, but your sins are separated between you and God. What do you open the book with in Isaiah 1.18? Come, let's reason together. Though your sins be red as crimson, I'll make them white as snow. The constant warning, but the constant wooing. Be saved. Turn to me. Pastor Xavier Reese and the heart of God for his people. And there's so much more to come next time. Now, if your schedule won't permit you to tune in, though, you can pick up a copy of this message. And the title to ask for is The Conquering King. It's available on CD for only $4. And make sure you pass on this study to someone in your church or Bible study when you're through listening. So once again, the title to ask for is The Conquering King, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths. 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. How can victory come out of defeat? That's next time on Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese. Don't miss it. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California www.calvarychapelpasadena.com